I had a little thought while you were talking, Paul, when you were talking about Nkosi, and um, I don't know if any of you, there are a few older, not very old, slightly older people in the audience. Do you remember the Nedbank advert? Who are these people? And as they jump off the rock into the... And I just thought, who are these people, Nkosi? These, <laughs> these systems engineers. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we're there. Oh, that looks quite purple, but oh, okay. <laughs> Is it me? <laughs> it's perfect. And it's just backwards and forwards there on... Uh, oh, backwards and backwards. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, all right. So welcome to the Age of the Fox and uh, thinking the future. So as you heard, I work with Clem Hunter. Uh, Clem Hunter and I have worked together since the year 2000, so it's about 15, nearly 16 years. And um, our strategic thinking has, has evolved ourselves uh, over those 15, 16 years. So when you look at our books in the Fox Trilogy, the three books that we've written together around strategy, you will see that evolution of thinking through, through those books. Um, but I'd like to just share with you a little bit around how we think strategically and um, why we talk about the Fox in, in terms of thinking the future and the type of thinking. Now, you're systems thinkers, you're systems engineers. I would tend to say in the strategic field, we are systems thinkers. Um, and when you are building scenarios, it's about using complexity and building systems and trying to understand those systems. The thing about systems, and as I'm sure that you know, um, it's made up of the parts, the sum of the parts and the interactions of those parts that develop that system. But scientifically, if you were to be able to work with that system and work with that system, you can almost find a predictability in the system. Now, that can't happen if one of the parts in the system is a human being because uh, humans are unpredictable. And when we think and we think strategically and we make decisions, we would think that decisions are based on logic, but uh, nine times out of ten, they're based on illogic, uh, illogical thought. So really, strategically, we almost play a game. And um, Clem and I say one of our uh, concepts in strategy is to say, well, what game are you in? Because the game is the system. And the game is the parts that make up that system. And it's the interaction of the parts. But that game changes all the time in strategy. So when we talk about complexity and understanding the environment that we're operating in and then the system itself that you're trying to develop within that environment, um, if you think strategically, it is like a game. And as I said, the game changes. And we've worked with many industries, in fact, across most sectors, energy or construction or the healthcare or the retail sector. Um, and banking sector and every time when I've gone into a session I've said well what game are you in and it's almost the most difficult question for them to try and answer and I just did it in the beginning as a quick little take thinking well sure one of the key ones that I was shocked about I spoke to BHP Bulletin and I just threw it out there I said well what game are you in i.e. what system are you in and we spent nearly three quarters of a day trying to define, and I thought, well, it was easy. They're in mining. <laughs> that was my assumption. But uh, the complexity of it is actually they're not just in mining. They're in uh, exploration and then building and then operating, and then you've got to understand the world, what commodities are required 
into the future because it takes a long time to explore, to build, to operate. So you really need to look far into the future in order to extrapolate back as to what you're going to do. So the complexity of actually trying to understand your game is very important, as you would know, as systems thinkers. And just welcome to the age of the fox. Um, one of the other things they're talking about, and I'm sure you've also heard this concept, is they say you know you move through different ages in terms of your thinking. And um, we were in the industrial age, and in actual fact, I think our education still, system still skills us and educates us for the industrial age. Uh, well, before that, we were in the agrarian age, and then we moved to the industrial age, then we moved to the information age, and then the knowledge age. So we're very much into the knowledge age. Um, how can we have knowledge management? Well, the question is, can you manage knowledge in a system? And they actually say we're on the cusp of the age of intelligence. Now, the age of intelligence requires systems thinking because it's about understanding the complexity and the interaction of the parts in the system. And if you think about it, the age of intelligence, there's almost a disconnect with how we educate in today's world because we don't necessarily educate in terms of complexity. We don't educate in the fact that there is a lot out there. It's about how you connect the dots and create new information. So I think it's a very exciting time to move into in terms of the age of intelligence, both for businesses and for individuals themselves and, and leaders to say, well, what is this world? What is the complexity and how do I connect the dots? Um, so I did actually, I know you weren't going to go into what systems engineering is, but I actually thought I'd better look it up <laughs> and see what systems engineering, because I thought systems, it seems to be something very similar to myself. But uh, really, strategy is similar <laughs> in its thinking to systems engineering. And so, you know, when you go through that model, that similar model around systems engineering, stating the problem, investigating the alternatives, model the system, then you integrate it, um, you launch the system, you assess the performance, and then you re-evaluate. Uh, and then I actually read one of your members said, well, really, all of that means we understand the whole problem before you try and solve it. Now, in strategy, that is understanding the context and the scope of the problem. So uh, Clem and I start our strategic conversation by saying, what is the context? What has happened in the last five years? What's the political um, situation, what's the economic situation, where's the social, the technical. We try to connect the dots and say, what's the context? And then we say, all right, what's your scope? So if it's a business, what's the scope of your business? What do you do? What are the services that you offer? What are the products that you provide? And then we start to say, well, does it match the context and a changing context? And we take the conversation further. So very similar to understanding the whole problem before you try to solve it. And the interesting thing in strategy is very often we don't go to the whole problem. We go into action straight away. So we'll have a strategy session and within a few minutes we're starting to say, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And we're starting to action. But we haven't actually understood the system itself yet. Um, examine all feasible alternatives before selecting a solution, which is what you do. Well, we also say, well, strategically, once you've understood that environment and the context and your scope and you want to think about the future, think about all of your options before you start 
to define which options you're going to take on board. Um, so look at the whole life cycle. When you develop the strategy, where's the beginning, where's the end point? Because strategy changes, it's dynamic. So the same strategy can't be valid forevermore. So at what point are those triggers that tell you you need to change the strategy? And that's about going back to understanding the context and the whole environment. And then you test the total system before delivering it. Well, that's where we work through scenarios. So we say, well, what is that future going to look like? Let's think about those scenarios. Let's test our strategy across those scenarios and then say it will work in this one. It definitely wouldn't work there. Where are the leverage points that work across all scenarios? Because those are the priorities that I'm going to take in. And where do I need to put specific options into certain scenarios? So we test it and we test it all the time. And then we watch those scenarios constantly. And then you document everything. Well, again, we also say you need to document it, you need to implement it, you need to be able to measure it. So we almost say, well, if you're looking at a strategy for the next five years, what's the meaning of winning? What are some of the measurable outcomes that you want to get? And then how do you measure along the way to see that you're actually reaching that winning point? So it's very similar. Uh, in terms of, of what you do and how we think strategically. So I'd like to just share a little bit of, of that concept with you in the session today and just take you through some of the global scenarios that we're looking at, some of the South African scenarios, because that's all of our context, doesn't matter which business we're in, and what is the complexity and the interactions that, that are happening at the moment. And please, if you want to, it's interactive, if you disagree or something jars with what I'm saying, you can stick that hand up, or you don't even have to stick your hand up, you can just shout and say, I, I completely disagree, or, or whatever, okay? So please, it's not, um, it's our thinking, it's how we see the world, but you might see it slightly differently to what, what we're putting up here. Okay, I wanted to just quickly go through, before we even get into trying to analyze and make sense of the future, in strategy they talk about the normal, so we're sitting in the normal at the moment, and then I often hear the buzzword, well, we're creating new normals. What are the new normals that we're looking at? And as you would know, again, the bell-shaped curve, Karl Haas, who was a German mathematician, developed the bell-shaped curve. And um, part, of, part of it says, if you're looking at the future and you're looking at the probability of an event happening in the future, the highest probability of that event is equal to sum of past uh, events and probabilities. So once you get the sum of the past events, you start to create that normal, and that's the top of the bell curve, and that's the greatest probability of an event happening. If you move away from that normal or that average, you then start to get to the extremes, and you get further and further, you deviate till you get the standard deviations and the extremes, and the extremes are where there are, there's less probability of an event happening. So you start to get the bell-shaped curve happening on the other side. Now what futurists are saying when they're looking at the environment that we're in is to say, well, in actual fact, the bell at the bottom is getting fatter because those extreme events, there's actually a great probability of extreme events, events happening than there was in the past. Why is that? Because there's greater volatility in the world, there's greater uncertainty um, in the world, and something like the internet allows us to be connected far more easily and to, to get things. So that probability of extreme events happening is becoming 
greater and greater. So it's fattening the ends of the bell. Now, one of the things Clem and I are saying, almost as futurist, you can see there are certain new normals happening. So in actual fact, it's not that the bell is getting fatter necessarily on either end. It's actually that the bell is being moved. It's being moved to a new position. And what is that new position? So that's what a scenario planner would do. A scenario planner would say, well, I'm thinking strategically. I'm trying to understand the future. But what are the drivers that are driving a shift in the bell? How quickly is that shift? And then what is that new normal? And sometimes that new normal needs to be a set of scenarios because we're not quite sure yet where it is. So I think that there are four things that are really shifting the bell that uh, are, are big trends that are, are happening and I think are going to stick. And you might disagree. The first one is globalization. Now we've had globalization around and we've had an integrated world. So we can say, well, that's not new. Um, but in a way, we're going into globalization two point, is it 2.0 or 2.0 or the young people can tell me how. But anyway, we are going into almost a new form of globalization. Um, it's a far more integrated, integra integrally integrated system than it was before. And I think that's because of things like China coming onto the playing field, opening its doors in 1978, and becoming a real superpower, second largest economy since 1978, a very short time to come into the playing field. So we are seeing an economic power shift. Now, an economic power shift also means that we're going to get far more complex trade and investment relationships. So again, if we were to have another financial crisis, we had the one in 2007. If we were to have one now in 2015 or 2016, it would probably look different to the one in 2007 because we are in a far more integrated and complex world. Um, but we're also getting a declining barrier to trade. So there's opportunity in this complexity, but it's about where to find it. So basically, if you were looking from a leadership perspective and trying to deal with globalization, you would start to need strong conceptual and contextual thinkers. That's the ability to deal with the complexity of globalization and the integration. And again, you would also need a far more collaborative approach. So in any kind of business or any sector that we're going into, in terms of not only understanding the system and being able to be conceptual and uh, see how it's interacting, we would also need to be far more collaborative in this future world that we're going into. The second thing that's moving the bell is digitalization. And again, digitalization has been around for quite a while, but it's become an enabler now. And it really is starting to have a tipping point and taking off. And you're even starting to have businesses saying, what does it actually mean for my business? So from a digitalization part, uh, point of view, you could almost say that by 2020, an entire generation would have grown up primarily in a digital world. Now, those are young people that are coming in into the system, and that's all they know is a digital world. And the other day I actually heard uh, something that I'd never even thought about that we take for granted, and that's our watch. And somebody said to me, look at a young person and see how, man how many young people wear a watch. And it's actually very few, because time is all around them in the digital world, whereas for some of us, uh, we still want to, to look at this almost one-dimensional um, thing that tells us the time. And someone said, no, it's two-dimensional, tells the date as well. So, 
<laughs> we can get the time and the date. Um, but for young people, that's, you know, that's not even applicable in, in the world and to the future. So technology is shifting the balance of power away from organizations and their leaders to the consumer. Therein lies another complexity in the system. Uh, where business has thought, well, this is what the consumer or the client wants. This is my model. This is what the product I'm going to provide, the services. Now the consumer is demanding and it becoming a two-way leadership um, situation. And of course we've got social media that's coming together and social media, we've started to see the effects of social media. It's definitely an intimacy, uh, immediacy that's coming into play and we're also getting a lot more peer-to-peer story. So digitalization is going to cause us to lead differently as well. And from a leadership perspective, I've just pulled out, well, obviously you're going to need the ability to embrace creativity, curiosity, and open minds. Again, understanding the system, systems thinking, to have that agility. But I think what's key about digitalization is that we've got other people that are content creators outside of ourselves, and that brings another complexity into the system, as you would know. And again, the power shift from consumer uh, to consumer-driven business models. The third thing that's shifting the bell that really I think is, is going to stay is individualization. And again, individualization means corporate power shifting to individual power. Now again, that means Within the organization, your employees, there's a more individualized approach, what employees are actually wanting out of a business, how they're interacting in the relationships, as well as the relationship between the business and the consumer because of individualization. So individualization also is due to an increasing middle class. And an increasing middle class means increasing wealth. And once you've got increasing wealth, you then start to have education coming through. And once you get a more educated populace, they then look for choice. They want diversification and they want more choice. Now, once you're starting to look at diversification and choice, you then have to start looking at more tailor-made offerings. So again, it's not the one size fits all. And certainly that's starting to play through and it's playing into lifestyle shifts and technology shifts. Um, from a leadership perspective, well, there are a lot of characteristics that the leader would require to deal with individualization, but I think the two at the bottom, driving authenticity and looking for accountability, are certainly things that are coming out that the leader of the future is requiring. And then the fourth thing that's shifting the bell and creating a new normal is techno technological conversion. Um, and the characteristics, of course, are biotechnology, nanotechnology, looking at disruptive innovation that's starting to come into play, smartphones becoming smarter, and again, the leadership that's required, number of characteristics, but you're going to need to understand converging markets, and I think value-add is going to be far more of a priority. And so now you start to connect the dots in the system around globalization, integrated, individualization, digitalization, how you're going to interact and then put it through technology conversion. And we are starting to see a very different world and a very different system that, are, that is actually playing out. And within that, we need to understand the complexity, make sense of it and develop strategies. So how do you do that? 
it's really, I like to use the, and, and you would use it from your system perspective, it's really about looking at the glasshouse effect. So within that system, uh, you do have uncertainty. You've got complexity, risk, and opportunity. And that's how we've traditionally been working with things. But imagine now you take the glasshouse off, you've still got the same trees or the same plants so it's exactly the same content inside you've just now taken the glass house away you're starting to be far more interconnected um, there's much greater uncertainty because it's a bigger system there's much less control and I think from a strategic perspective that's important for strategists there's far less control than they had before in this new world that we're starting to develop there's more risk but there's also greater opportunity so again, when you're looking at a system and you're looking at the risk in the system, you've almost got to start taking that glass house away and say, what are the risks? They're not necessarily those risks that we see on the surface, those more obvious risks. And sometimes risk management says this is a risk and this is a political risk and this is an economic risk and this is a technical risk. Um, but in some ways, you've almost got to go under that surface of risks to get to the granular risks. What's under that that's actually developing that risk that we can see on the surface? And, and that strategically is, is how we need to, to think about the future. So Clem and I use uh, the fox analogy, as, as you heard in the beginning around our books. Uh, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog one big one. Now, I would tend to say you're all probably fox thinkers here in this room because a fox is a systems thinker. A hedgehog sees the future, but sees it at a single projected future. So they're not, not robust thinkers, very robust, as robust as a fox. But a fox says there's too much uncertainty. So if I'm looking at 10 years' time, I can't see a single projected future. I need to say there are three or four scenarios that could play out. And I'm going to hold those scenarios. And then I'm going to say, well, how do I even know a scenario is in play? I'm going to be aware and I'm going to watch the flags that are now tangible. And I can see immediately. And if a flag comes out and its consequences are going to take me to a scenario, I'm going to assign a probability to that scenario. And if in the beginning, when I develop my scenarios, it's got a 5% probability or 10%, I'll hold it as a fox because it's on the radar screen if it's got a 5 or 10%, but I'm not going to put a strategic decision to it. But if some flags start coming up in the environment that takes it from a 10% to a 30 or a 40%, I'm now going to start look at my, looking at my own risk profile and say at a 40% probability, would I put a strategic decision in or am I the type of person that will wait for a 100% probability before our action? And sometimes that's when they say you've missed the boat. So again, how do you actually deal with it? And that's how a fox thinks. A fox knows many things and holds the scenarios, looks for flags, put probabilities and actions. And they do it quite quickly. A fox works very, very quickly. So all of those things happen quickly in a split second. Uh, the hedgehog sees that single projected future and says, um, I'll shoehorn things that happen in the environment because it'll still play out into that future. And I think before 2007, we thought strategically of the long boom scenario with China coming on to the playing field with technology, the way it was going, population growth, long boom scenario was sure to carry on with a few little economic dips, 
but the long boom scenario ultimately, and that's a hedgehog approach. And I think that's what happened 2007, 2008, where a lot of businesses that were hedgehog businesses came unstuck. Some of them aren't even in business, and others are still trying to, to catch up. And we've also had political leadership that's followed exactly the same. And now they're starting to say, hold on, the world's a little bit more complex. So the concept of scenarios is coming into play. So Clem and I thought, well, let's just put a framework for that thinking so that you can think how, how to think like a fox. And really it's to say, okay, if I'm looking at the next six months or I'm looking at the next five years or ten years, give yourself the time frame, what is certain in that next six months or five years and what is uncertain? And the trends that I were talking about are some of the certainties and then there within that there are some uncertainties. And what can you control as a player and what's outside of your control that you've just got to understand its interaction in the system? So we really say you've got to work through all of those quadrants. You could start your thinking about trying to define what's certain outside of your control in the environment, what's contextual, and then what the uncertainties are within the environment, and then you can start taking it internally. What can I do? What are my options and what sort of decisions? And it's iterative. So, so we work with that and it gives us a framework to hook our thinking onto. And that goes then into something a little bit more tangible. We talk about the game as the system, we say, well, what are the rules of the game? What are the certainties in that environment? And can I define them as certainties? What are the uncertainties which would then play into some scenarios? And then I'm going to hold the certainties, the uncertainties, and the scenarios strategically. And then I'm going to say, well, through that, I'm going to road test my strategy, and I'm going to say, what are my options? And what decisions do I need to play? And then if something else happens in the environment, another uncertainty, I hook it in. And then we've just nuanced it, and this is the work we've, we're recently doing, and uh, we actually brought a book out last week, um, so it's kind of, you could say, hot off the press, uh, called Flag Watchers, that really just nuances this thinking a little bit more. And it says, okay, well, we're talking about rules of the game and we're talking about key uncertainties. There's a British philosopher called Karl Popper who said you can look at events or a phenomena in the world and put them into two types of categories. They're either clockwork events um, that actually you can analyze and you can say, I can see where it's going and the, the sum of its parts and, and how it operates, or they are cloudy. And a cloudy event means that it shifts, it's moving like a cloud all the time. So it's very hard to find where the normal is in a cloudy event. And we've then nuanced and said, well, really, the clockwork events are the rules of the game. They're the things that you can define and you can see. And then the cloudy events are the key uncertainties. What's harder that I then know I've now got to build some scenarios? And we talk about them as flags. So we say, well, let's have a look at what the flags are. Are they clockwork flags? Are they cloudy flags? And do I need to build scenarios to see where they're going to go before I can look at my options and decisions? So if I can then just share with you, what are some of the flags that we're looking at at the moment? So there's a whole list in the global environment. I'm not going to go through all of them. I've already talked the internet and cellular flag and the lifestyle and leisure flag. So if you look within 
digitalization, individualization, there are flags there uh, that one would want to be looking at. But really, at the moment, these top flags are incredibly important, including the poorest border flag. So if we wanted to try and look at the world and try and understand what's happening, we would want to say, let me understand those flags, because they are rising flags. And those rising flags are leading to consequences. So the first one is the explosion of religious fundamentalism, the religious flag, and that absolutely is up at, at the moment. When we have a look at Paris, when we have a look at Mali, and, and really that one goes back to 9-11. Um, that was the first time that we could probably have seriously, although we captured in our first book, Mind of Fox, 9-11, not thank goodness, exactly, but as a concept of, of a flag that could come up around religious fundamentalism, and we talked about an attack on, on U.S. territory, on U.S. soil. And uh, before that, there were attacks in Kenya, in Tanzania, so there were flags, actually, even before that, that showed religious fundamentalism. But we, we don't capture some of the flags until it's too late and the event has happened. So the growth of ISIS, the declaration of Islamic State, crucial at the moment. If you translate it into Africa, Nigeria with Boko Haram, um, Mali at, at the moment, uh, Kenya with Al-Shabaab. So again, if you businesses that are certainly businesses in South Africa that are looking to expand into Africa, for Nigeria, that's a cloudy flag, relig religious fundamentalism. It's shifting. The, you're not sure where that normal is. So you would need to build scenarios around this flag, around terrorist attacks, and what you would need to do as a business in terms of evacuation or, or some of the things you'd be thinking about. The second flag is Russian assertiveness, and Russian assertiveness, again, the Putin flag, or the, the red flag. Um, Putin is a fox. I don't, I'm not too sure if you would agree or disagree, but as a strategist, he's, he's quite a fox. Um, and of course, his, uh, the seeding of Crimea, his influence in Ukraine was one of the first times that we started to say, hold on, where is Putin going? What is his strategy and, and what is he thinking about? Europe is very worried. They're not worried about Grexit, Greece exiting or Brexit, uh, the UK exiting, but they are worried about Putin in, in the US. Uh, in the in Europe. So certainly that flag is coming up and if you look at the link there and you start to have a look at the interplay here as to what's happening and connecting those dots, it, it's even telling a, a different story. So that's another cloudy flag that needs to be scenarioed. The third one is the grey flag, which is a rising flag and that's an ageing flag and that's a clockwork flag. So if you're looking at a system, the ageing flag, you can see in Europe there's an ageing flag, although that may shift with the migrants coming in from an ageing flag to a younger flag, but Japan, etc., uh, the US to a certain point but not necessarily in Africa. So that's one of the reasons why they look at Africa and they say Africa has huge potential because it doesn't have the grey flag. We've got young populations and if we can transfer skills and build skills, Africa is the, the new frontier and skills will go from Africa to the rest of the world. So that would be a grey flag, but it will change the global economy. And then the other two that are important is climate change urgency. Um, that flag is up and the flag 
figures up because we've got COP21 in Paris starting on Monday and I think it'll be interesting to watch to see what comes out because they're starting to say that there might be some kind of legal um, protocol that could come out of COP21. You know, they say it every year, but if you think about the flag, it's growing from an environmental perspective. Uh, if you look at Obama in terms of his current strategy around coal, he wants to decrease coal. They've got fracking and they've got other self-sufficient uh, things. China wants to decrease coal. South Africa, this flag's a problem because South Africa, 80 or 90% of our energy is coal based. So we're a coal-based nation and if this flag goes up around coal and emissions and CO2 emissions, we, we are in a problem, which means we would be starting to have to put research and development around carbon sequestration, CO2 emissions, etc. I think, I'm, am I being warned? <laughs> Is the system automatic? <laughs> Very clever, guys. <laughs> um, Climate change, the effects, are, or is it just an Eskom story? <laughs> so, so this is, uh, is also, but this is a clockwork flag too. I think climate change is in, it's coming in, it's going to have effects, and it, it's a clockwork. So you can deal with it in the system. And then the, the last one that I wanted to just mention is the growing anti-establishment sentiment. And that's a global flag that's starting to come up. Again, it comes back to the middle class. And it's it's because the middle class, if you look at the type of scenario where there's very low growth in the world at the moment, it's the middle class that are being squeezed. And the middle class are educated and they're able to have a voice. So that voice is starting to show, and it's starting to show as a growing anti-establishment sentiment. And one could even give the example of the, um, I must be careful because I said students must fall the other day. Blade, <laughs> blade to the fall. <laughs> Um, fees must fall. It's a classic example, I think, of a growing anti-establishment sentiment where the voice is now starting to say, hold on, we are not accepting it uh, any longer. So I think a party such as EFF, and I just heard on the radio now that uh, Julius is in London giving a talk, and uh, yeah, apparently he said, no, Nelson Mandela was uh, not very good. So I don't know how well that, that talk's gone down. But... Um, EFF, I think, is also hooking on, onto this anti-establishment sentiment. And when they're bringing things like nationalization in, into play, land reform, it, they're playing to this anti-establishment sentiment. So those flags are interacting with each other and they're coming up at the moment. And of course, there are those other flags and they're leading to global scenarios. So we're sitting with four scenarios at the moment. New balls, please, is a best-case scenario, a growth scenario. Clem and I think that it's an outlier. Um, hard time scenario is at play at the moment, where we're still in one world, but with very low economic growth. That's the U in an economic sense, with growth maybe only starting in about 2020. And then there's an interplay between hard times and ultraviolet the UV. So some countries in low growth and other countries such as China if they were still at 7%, 6.8%, it's still fairly good growth. And that's brought Africa back onto the playing field because resources and commodities. So the two-speed scenario, the ultraviolet scenario, is interacting with the hard times. So I'm not too sure how you see the world going forward, but we see it between those two scenarios. The interaction, it's hard times, and the flag we're watching for, whether it'll be hard times, is China's growth. If China does drop 
to below the 6.8, and they're starting to already say it is, then if it gets down to about 5%, certainly the world will go back into hard times because there's nowhere else showing growth. The U.S. is not even showing growth. It's under 2%. So, um, but if China's growth continues, then you might see this two-speed, in which case strategically as a multinational business, you would say I'm going to straddle those two scenarios. Hard times because margins are harder, and I'm actually wanting to look at the value proposition, and I'm looking at innovation in this type of uh, scenario, and then I'm straddling to look for geographic growth. So I'll look at different countries in Africa to find that geographic growth and if there's anywhere else in the world. And that's why Africa has still done quite well, because it still has potential. And the other outlier is the fork lightning. Fork lightning, worst case scenario, um, but... Probability-wise, Clem and I give it a 15% probability. So we think that the two outliers, we're on the fence whether we're going to go a best case or worst case, but they're on our radar screen, and we think the play is between those two, and for us, we think the world's going back into hard times. So if you think about it from a South African context, what does it mean? Because if the world's in a hard time scenario and South Africa is under 2% growth, 1.3%, 1.4% growth, we're certainly not getting where some other countries in Africa are getting growth. Countries such as Mozambique doing well, okay, it's got its natural gas. Uh, I've just come back from Rwanda, 7% growth there. They say Rwanda might become the new Switzerland of Africa or could potentially become the Switzerland of Africa. Mozambique, as I say, with the natural gas, I think is going to come onto the playing field. And then we've got various other countries in, in Africa to, to look at. <coughs> so that's really where the world is at the moment. Can I just have a sip? It's wine. Sorry, not water. Shocking. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so just to then round it off and say, well, what's happening in terms of South Africa? Um, our flags are quite a few. Um, <laughs> corruption and crime has been identified as the top flag. And that they also the World Economic Forum do global uh, flags and global risks. And then they followed exactly the same process in South Africa. And the top flag came out as corruption and crime. So it really is embedded, and it is a flag in the South African context. And the second one that they uh, highlighted was the quality of infrastructure. Because if you haven't got the infrastructure for a growth scenario, then you're not going anywhere. So not only is it the Eskom, but it's also the water, it's our roads, it's our transport, it's our air. What does our infrastructure look like? Um, and then, of course, other flags are style of leadership. What style of leadership have we got at the moment? So you can go back to say, well, Julius Malema is saying Nelson Mandela's style of leadership wasn't necessarily correct. Is Jacob Zuma's style of leadership? Who are the next leaders going to be? What is the flag there? Um, pockets of excellence. Entrepreneurial uh, spark as a flag. Are we an entrepreneurial country? Or are we very uh, stuck in big business and it's very hard for entrepreneurs to actually get anywhere? And do we think entrepreneurially? And independence of judiciary and other institutions is a flag. Nationalization and land ownership. Now, not all of those flags are up at the moment, but there are potential flags. Certainly corruption and crime is up and the quality of infrastructure is up. And I would put leadership as up at the moment. 
as a flag. Yes, it actually, well, we've actually put it under pockets of excellence. Um, we've actually said under pockets of excellence, you have pockets of excellence in South Africa, and one of the key ones we're watching is education flag. Because if we benchmark our education system up to the best quality, then that flag's positive. But if we're taking it down and we're starting to say 30% is a, ma is a maths pass rate, um, that pocket of excellence, i.e. education, is down. And if you have a look at education, and I think there are about 29,000 government schools and about 24,000 are dysfunctional. So we only have 5,000 that are actually functional in the government system, and then, of course, we've got an exceptionally good private system that could go against. So there's a level of inequality that, you know, they're talking about. But that is a flag, and it's underneath the pocket of excellence is where we put it. And actually, if I take it on to the next, um, next uh, set of scenarios here, really, we fit it here under pockets of excellence. So we've said there are three things for us that would be flags that we're going to look for in a, in a scenario. It's inclusive leadership, pockets of excellence, and a balanced economy. And I think I've got the slide just to, sh to highlight it again. What are the characteristics of a winning nation? So if you're looking at a country, and number one, characteristic of a winning nation is education. And it is around that pipeline and it is around innovation and maths and science, and so, so those are the things that actually need to, to come in. So, and, and that's where China has got it right, because China has focused on education. And, you know, China plays a long-term game, so not immediate. They know education takes time, but they want that pipeline coming through. So their number one um, focus is education. Strong work ethic and spirit of entrepreneurship, does South Africa have it? High rate of savings, adequate infrastructure, being export-orientated global player. Are we? We are an export-orientated player, but if we have strikes in the mines, we are a resource player, and if we can't get the resource out. Uh, dual logic economy, we're not. We're a big business economy, I think you would agree. Um, and that's the difference in Africa. Africa doesn't have big businesses, so entrepreneurial businesses can come onto the playing field. It's far more level in Africa than in South Africa. Social harmony, do we have it? Competitive personal and company tax, um, an attractive environment for foreign direct investment, and then an efficient government. So if you were to look at the characteristics of a winning nation, you could say, okay, what in that is South Africa doing quite well? Because if there are a few things there, then we can say, okay, we're going to be a Premier League uh, player. But if all of those are pointing downwards, then we're in a challenging position uh, at the moment. Um, a challenging <laughs> position. Because um, there, you know, there is not much there at the moment, I, I would say, that we are focusing on. Now, strategically, what should, if you're looking at the system, you look at that system and you say, where's the leverage point? Where's the one point? If I can change it, it will alter other things in the system. So what I would be doing as South Africa saying, if I was even to look at these 10 points here, what do I need? What can I do? What can I control? What can I go into that's going to change, change the system? And I, I would say education is one, but it's long term. 
Um, but I would say that that is a leverage point that you have to absolutely focus on. But I would also say maybe things like being an export-orientated global player. We need to make sure that we get those resources out. Um, maybe it's around the, the infrastructure, and that's why we, we're putting priority on infrastructure. Um, but, but where do we need to play here to get this, to get this right? Um, besides China, what, what is the country that you think that good in those Yeah, now you say... <laughs> is, is to go, is go somewhere else. Yeah. Botswana is also an export-orientated global player. Um, actually, <clears throat> they've got good quality of education. However, what their problem is, remember their economy is based on diamonds. So it's an export-orientated, um, and they did a strategy session fairly recently, and out of it, the one rule of the game said diamonds are not forever, because they're not. It's a resource. There's life of mine, and in Botswana, the life of mine is nearly finished. So if you've got a very strong government, because it's a 50% shareholder, and it's easy to get a job in government, you're going to come out of an education system assured of a job. And they now have to say, hold on, that's not the case. So now they need to produce a far more entrepreneurial uh, system and diversified. So I, I would say that, you know, South Africa, uh, Botswana does have this. It's small, so it's had the infrastructure, uh, I think, at this point, although infrastructure in Africa is a, a story. A, a work ethic, um, they haven't had a spirit of uh, entrepreneurship, but I think by the size of the economy, they've managed to play and get GDP per capita um, higher than South Africa's GDP per capita. And, and did, I, did, did that answer your... You see, there's no country that's actually got all of these. Not even China got everything in their basket. But it's the countries that have got a couple of them, at least, in the basket that are playing in the Premier League. So it would be the US and it would be Switzerland. It would be your, your Denmark and, and you know, your Norway and, and some of those that are, that are playing in, into this. Singapore uh, playing into this. China playing into this. Yeah, and some countries in Africa that are starting to, to take this on. And that's, for me, where Africa is such an interesting um, country, uh, continent, because I think that there are players in Africa that are shifting, and South Africa, again, is very slow. Even though we're part of BRICS, uh, I don't think the S is, is necessarily our strength uh, in, in that BRICS story. So if I, if I just came back to South Africa to just finish off with then, if you look at those characteristics of the winning nation, and then you look at our scenarios, so if you think globally, if we're perhaps going into hard times, and then you start saying, well, where's South Africa? South Africa is actually defined as a Premier League player. They defined 61 countries are in that basket of Premier League, and we're 53rd. So we are defined globally as a Premier League player, perhaps into this relegation zone. And if you start to say, okay, well, what flags are really key? And it's leadership. And then we go back to that style of leadership and inclusive leadership and what's happening there. I think we're very low on that flag at the moment. And in a sense, it's not necessarily only political leadership. It might even be business leadership and uh, that, that whole package. 
Uh, pockets of excellence. To your point, we're really watching education as the key flag under pockets of excellence. Health, we would also look at uh, underneath that. And then the balanced economy for us is to say, yes, we want to play competitively with our big business, but to create jobs, we need small business. And that's what's going to be the balanced economy. So it's about creating those, jo- those small businesses that can create jobs rather than looking at unemployment and creating jobs per se. So if we had policy that allowed um, small business to come into play there, if we had policy that really focused on education and it was clear and definite sectors, and if we had leadership that put a stake in the ground and said, what do we need to do to take us from where we currently are, um, we would be well into the Premier League instead of maybe sitting in in the relegation zone. So second division is poor but peaceful, and then a failed state is the cautionary tale, so it's not off the playing field uh, or off your set of scenarios. So Clem and I think we're 50-50 between Premier League and second division at this point in time in in South Africa. So it's a strategic moment for South Africa. Okay, I'm trying to be positive. <laughs> no, we're actually, we, we are on the fence. Um, and that's why our probability is it's 50-50 between Premier League and Second Division. So in actual fact, we are strategically saying if you look at those characteristics of the winning nation and you try and say what is South Africa doing well at, not much. In, in that list, because even our foreign direct investment relative to other countries in Africa is, is way below where it should be. Um, so we, we're actually saying we think we're sitting in this relegation zone with a 50-50 chance uh, of, of uh, dropping to, to second division. And our take then is if we drop to second division, Remember, second division is a poor but peaceful scenario. Now, if you think about the strikes, you think about service uh, delivery, uh, how we react, we're not peaceful. We're not a peaceful nation. And with land reform or land grabs, our farmers won't act like Zimbabwean farmers. So they will, um, it will be more unrest. So a second division, I think, will increase the probability of a failed state. So it'll play in terms of that system. So is, is this your, your, your trying to be positive picture, or is this <laughs> sort of a neutral, holding picture? Our picture, we say we're, we're on the fence. That's, that's our take. Because South Africa is actually, we were looking up, it's the 33rd largest economy. So actually we should be in the middle of the Premier League. If we're the 33rd largest economy, we should be playing. We're playing way below in 53rd position than where we should be. And um, again, competitiveness, will, the, the obvious one is electricity and, and where we're going to go with electricity, but also with water. Um, uh, so so that's, that's going to play onto this. This side, this is around our social cohesion. And in, in some ways, we're becoming a less cohesive society than a more cohesive at this moment in time. Our levels of inequality are huge for a number of reasons, and, and we are becoming less cohesive. So 
Um, if we were to say, where are we in the system? Hard time scenario, very difficult globally. Where is South Africa going to find its growth? We are in Africa. We do have resources. Uh, we've got skills. But we think that because of some of these things here, our flags are pointing down more. So we, and, and let me also just, sorry, I'm, I'm belaboring the answer, but we started about two years ago and our probability was 70-30-0. So then we went to 60-40-0, then we went to 60-30-10. So you can see how our system is, is working at the moment. And it's based on our flags as we see those flags. So we're not just doing it intuitively, saying, oh, I think it's, it's not going well. We use the flags as, uh, as our systems. So, yeah. You rely on some quantitative data as well um, with regards to seeing whether the flag is raised or not? We, we can. You can look at quantitative data as well as qualitative data. And that's the thing with scenarios. Sometimes it's just qualitative uh, data that actually defines, and, and that's the complexity. So it's not only quantitative. And, and actually we had MIT uh, who talked with us, and they said, no, no, they want to put it in a quantitative mathematical uh, approach, and you can't. The, the complexity, as you know, of the system, and it's dealing with people, it, it can't be quantitative. Well, I guess it's a fair assumption to assume it's objective. Objective. Well, uh, again, I think that you could almost say, it, are our probabilities subjective? Uh, and they could be subjective because it's how we see it. So somebody else actually might sitting in this room, I could tell you a farmer in the agricultural sector would say, no, they see far more probability of a failed state because they see it from there. So again, it's subjective to a point and you would need to get a number of people or if you're doing a strategy session, everybody in your room needs to be feeling the same way about your probabilities. Then whether any of the points on one of those 10, on any of the, of, of the list of 10, any of the discourses in South Africa at the moment, if you could take a discourse, a particular discourse, then that discourse would say, no, 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 it's not pointing down, it's actually pointing up. Where your discourse may be, no, 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 that's pointing down because of that subjective contribution. Yes. So yes. there may be people that say, for very good arguments and for very good reasons, certain nationalization of, 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 of capital assets in, in, in the borders of this country is a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing. Um. Yeah, ab absolutely. And therein, I think, lies why the tool is good because it allows a framework for debate. So it allows you to now have that debate and to think beyond where you might have made an assumption about something and be subjective about it and take it into place. This allows somebody else to say, I see it from a very different perspective nationalization, for example, could be incredibly positive. But then you have to start to say, well, let's think of countries like Zambia, who nationalized the mines, and Angola had to go out. Have you got the capability in government to run the mine as a business and, and all the... And so then you can further the debate to say, is nationalization positive or negative in terms of these scenarios? So, yes, it is subjective, but it does also allow that framework for debate to take place. Otherwise, debate often becomes, yes, you, but I believe that, I believe that, and it's dick, dick, that's, that's all that. It. 
and that pushes the red arrow and then everybody's in the failed state and conventional wisdom, we're all walking out here like this. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there is more unemployment uh, and, and certainly the consequence people say and I don't necessarily think it's only a consequence but the, an increased level in crime and I, I do a lot of work in the mining sector and I know there's, there are a lot of announcements that have been put on hold actually in areas where there are going to be further job losses but big job losses but that in some ways they start to say in communities it will shift this it could almost be the catalyst to to shift this because when you get those big job losses in those areas that are already have burning tires and a lot of issues around communities there too it could so they've been asked to put on hold having said that you then have to say well <laughs> competitiveness we need to move to mechanization of minds. Because if you look back to the beginning, what's moving the normal, it's technology. So if we want to remain competitive, so where do we get the balance in that challenge? And again, does government even know that balance to, to get to, to be able to then play it um, with all of those challenges? Yes. But that's the thing too. Remember, scenarios are good and bad for different players. So for some players, increased, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw you had one thing with Danelle Dynamics, so uh, I've done some work with Danelle. I mean, a, a hard times or a fork lightning scenario is fantastic globally for, for Danelle. I mean, you know, so obviously depending on the nature of the business that you're in, too, scenarios have, have different uh, meanings, yeah. And that's why, from a business perspective, you would hold them all and you would think of your strategy across all of them. Because if something happens and it does take it somewhere else, you've already got some options and some strategic decisions. You know how to play that environment. And that's the agility that, that you need in, in a system now to be able to play it. Otherwise, if you haven't even thought about it, you can't be quick with the right sort of decisions. And so therefore the flags for us are becoming so important, more so than the scenarios themselves, watching the flags, because they're tangible. And if you put two or three flags together, sometimes that makes it worse. Just think, sorry, in my last thing, VW, okay, with their emissions, and they weren't authentic, and they didn't, and look at their reputation at, at this point in time. If they had have seen the green flag and understood that people understand the green flag now, so we are far more environmentally conscious and going to have a voice. And then you talk about the other flag, the anti-establishment sentiment, you know, against big business. If you had to put those flags together, you might have realized what the outcome could potentially be for a business. So that's the sort of strategy that one needs to, to be thinking about when you're looking at your environment. Yes, yes, as... Yeah, 
I think it's got a huge impact, the porous borders in the South African context, so that it's not only, we're not only looking at Europe and, and what's happening there. I think porous borders in South Africa, and we've seen it with the xenophobia and, um, you know, some of the outcomes coming with that. So I actually also think it plays uh, along, along this axis. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a negative because it's, it's, not even, it's not controlled. And then again, we have a society that it doesn't accept. Uh, so, yeah. It's interesting because a lot of the influx is stimulating the economy, the informal economy. <coughs> but that's exactly. So again, there are some positives and there are some negatives that are, that are coming out of it. So then again, you would strategically weigh up the positives versus the negatives and the trade-off in terms of the, to see, because as you know, the complexity, it's never simple. It's never straightforward. So yeah. So yeah, so that's, so really that's all I'd like to share with you um, in, in terms of, of how we think. We do think in systems, we use flags a lot, we build those scenarios, we watch all the time. Um, and, and so, you know, as I've said there, from a leadership perspective, it's a complex, complex world that we're in, as you know, in terms of the system. So you're going to really be able to have to show all of these things going forward. And that translates into curiosity, passion, authenticity, and agility. So as a leader, those are the sort of characteristics that are being required in the future, not the leader of the past. That was, uh, you know, the very firm. So, yeah. Thank you. May the fox <laughs> be with you. <laughs> Thank you. Were there any other questions or anything else? Are you? you the Sorry. Growth in Sorry. Okay, wait. Uh, I'll come. I'll come back to you. Um, the Fox Trilogy. So uh, the concepts are in the Fox Trilogy, and then the flags in particular are in this latest book that's come out, the Flag, Wat flag Watchers where we actually go through each of those flags and we expand them as to what each of those flags mean, porous border and religious flags and, yeah. Because, because uh, obviously the mind of the fox so is not trying to understand the desert and make the books to describe different tools and different ways. Yeah. And it just builds on the... It, it builds on the mind of a fox. Yes, it absolutely builds on the foundation of the mind of Fox. We haven't moved away from that in terms of you saw I've put that, uh, but we've built it into a whole strategic conversation, taking players into account because that's where the interactions are. And for you, that would be the important because it's connecting all those different players in your system. That's important. So we've, we've moved and added some things in our other books to get to the point of now flags, looking at flags, yeah. And the China, so. Yes, so the grey flag is an important one in their context. Yes. 
it could do because there is a demographic flag, you're right, it's the ageing flag, which in the next 10 to 15 years is certainly going to play out. And that's why they've reversed that one-child policy so quickly now to say, is it a two-child policy now? Um, because they've realised that that flag could actually take the consequences of that flag. And then India, of course, is going to have a higher uh, population than, than China. which is what they're trying to do, and that's why education now is a key uh, element for them, because they want to move from a replication and a manufacturing economy into a knowledge and, and a conceptual and an innovation. And that in and of itself will drop their growth, because when you move into an innovative or a conceptual type of uh, knowledge economy, your growth will naturally drop. But that's fine. I think they, they know that. So again, it's long-term coming into play, and they work on five-year, five-year, five-year incremental plans, and they've just finished this last, uh, I think it was the 12th plan, they're going into the 13th plan, which starts next year, and it'll be interesting to see what they're focusing on in the 13th plan, because they take a few things, they focus on it for the five years, and then they take the next, and they move, and they play, yeah. Was there another question there? No. I was just thinking of interaction between flags Interacting, and I think that's the more interesting thing. Flags in isolation are interesting, and you can see each flag and its consequences, but it's that interaction of those flags and what's right up and what's coming up and where do they reinforce or where do they counteract uh, each other is the more interesting um, thing to be thinking about. Yeah. It depends. Our global scenarios and our South African scenarios now, we're looking, we were looking at 2020, we'd probably extend it now out to 2025, because 2020 is in four years' time, <laughs> in next week or so. Um, so we're probably looking to 2025, but there are some, I've worked in the transport sector that's looking to 2050, because, you know, building uh, and, and your roads and where you're cutting land use, etc., at long term. So uh, then you would want to be looking at 2050. Sassel, look at 2050, because if there's no internal combustible engine, then they would want to play the game now, but they might need to put things in place that change their business model for, for that time. So that's, you decide the nature of the business and what time frame to, to look at. Yeah. Is it wine? Time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for listening and participating. Well, thank you. That was fantastic. Um, probably countless examples we can discuss upstairs just now about the best envisaged systems that went all right. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, thank you very much. Um, Oh, lovely. Something from a small vineyard high in the mountains. Oh. <laughs>
<laughs> Just what I want. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So what do I need to do? I'm pleased you, I'm pleased you picked up the Star Wars. May the fox be with you. <laughs> oh, Darth. Old Darth. <laughs> oh, with the... <laughs> okay. Thanks. Good. Thank you. <laughs>